and then give him a hand and let's let's hear what what God has to say through you Ryan thank you thank you auntie Yo, great. Um, we are in Galatians, and uh, this morning we will be looking at Galatians 2, verses 6 to 10. So if you do have Bibles, you can uh, begin to page there, otherwise it will appear on the screen. It's a real privilege to preach this morning, and uh, I just want to pray for a second, for myself, if you don't mind. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. We just want to pray that your gospel will become more and more a revelation for us as we listen to your word, Lord God. So be with us this morning. I ask you in your name. Amen. All right, so just some quick context background, background, background of where we're at in Galatians. Galatians 2 is where the, the, the verse of scripture we're at, and we're in the fifth week of our preaching series. But I just want to quickly just kind of reorientate ourselves as to where we're at in the whole, what Galatians is unpacking. So firstly, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia who are being misled by a group of Judaizers. We say Judaizers in South Africa, but I believe it's Judaizers, so I'll try to get that right, uh, who seem to be teaching that you couldn't be a Christian without incorporating Jewish customs and laws into your life, into your practice. And this wasn't just a matter of actually doing customary things, um, but it was more a matter of, um, so it wasn't just a matter of like you have to celebrate Jewish holidays, but it was more a matter of claiming that the customary things that, customary things that you had to do were integral to your salvation. You couldn't be saved, you couldn't be justified before God, you couldn't go to heaven, you couldn't be right before God unless you actually integrated Jewish customs, laws, and ways of doing things into your life. Um, that's what would make you acceptable to God and would keep you included in the covenant community of God's people. So that's essentially what their argument was. And Paul has firstly begun the Galatians by first setting up something of his authority. He's, going, he's making the argument that he didn't come up with the gospel of free grace, where God saves you based on your faith, not on your works. He didn't come up with that by himself. And effectively, that's the argument he's building by first setting up his, uh, his authority, in a sense, by saying, just like the other apostles, I too was an apostle. Jesus also called me to preach the gospel. And he'll take that argument even further, or he does that, take that further now, um, when he speaks about um, how... Um, how he actually did go meet the original apostles, the original disciples, and they had a discussion. We'll get into some of that uh, now today. But they essentially had a discussion where they looked at what he was preaching and made a call on it. And so, um, but what the Judaizers were saying was about Paul. I mean, Paul had um, Paul worked with the, the Galatian church and uh, preached the gospel to them, and they'd gotten saved at the back of what it was that he was preaching. And then these guys came along and said, whoa, 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 just, just hold up, hold up, hold up. Paul did preach this free grace thing, but he, Paul doesn't really know everything that he's talking about. They might have said, look, this guy doesn't really know what the real gospel is. He got saved pretty late. If you know the story of Paul, he was persecuting the church. He was killing everyone, right? And then he got saved. So he could have said, remember, this is the guy that was persecuting us. So why are you listening to what he's saying? He doesn't really know what he's talking about. I might have said, said things like as well, like he wasn't around with Jesus, but we come from Jerusalem, because that's effectively where they came from, and we were there when Jesus died. We were there when Jesus raised. We know the disciples uh, personally, so we know the gospel better than he does. 
that would have effectively been something like their argument to discredit Paul and say, this free grace thing that he preaches is not the real thing. And it sounds pretty reasonable if you think about it. I mean, if you were in that position and you thought about it, I mean, after, after Paul got saved, uh, had his Damascus experience um, and was commissioned to preach, um, and he preaches the gospel there in Damascus, and his life is threatened. If you know the story, you'll find it in Acts 9. And they have to lower him and a basket, uh, from a basket in the city wall so he can escape. So he makes a run for it. And then we see in Galatians 1 that he's basically outlining that he went into the Arabian desert after that. And at some stage returned to Damascus. And then there's about a three-year gap before he meets the original apostles. So you can see that their argument had some merit in the sense, if you just thought of it logically. Um, he only got to meet James, Jesus' brother at the time. And then if you read chapter 2 in Galatians, at the beginning, which Charlie went over last week, it took another 14 years before Paul saw the apostles again. And at that meeting, Paul and the apostles chatted about this gospel he was preaching. which is the verse we spoke about last week, and they came to intimidate this whole proceeding, this meeting that they were having, where Paul was going to outlay what it was he was preaching, and the apostles were going to see, does this match to what we're preaching? Um, just a couple of interesting things is that Paul, you can see what he's done, is he took uh, Barnabas along with him, because Paul ministered with Barnabas, ministered in team, as well as Titus. Barnabas was a Jew, Titus was a Greek. So effectively, this whole thing is going to be about, is the gospel to the Gentiles the gospel that is preached to the Jews? And if there are a difference, why is there a difference? And should the rest of the world integrate into what it is that the Jewish people are, uh, are the way that they live and their customs and that kind of thing? Does it make sense? That's effectively the background that we're dealing with. And obviously, the implication of that is that you need to do more than just believe in Jesus to be saved. So we're going to pick it up from Galatians 2, verse 6 to And from those who seemed to, be in, seemed to be influential, that's the original apostles, which he went to go meet, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's Jews and Gentiles, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, Cephas is Peter, it's his Hebrew name, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now this morning I'm going to try and offer an exegesis of the scripture. Exegesis simply means let's look what the scripture is saying and pick out what we, what we can see. So the outcome of the meeting is that the original apostles in Jerusalem agreed with Paul and Barnabas' teaching of the gospel at every point. That's what we see the outcome of the meeting was. So the Judaizers didn't really have a point when they said Paul didn't know what he was talking about. He was preaching something outside of what the apostles were preaching. The only difference between the two of them was the people they were called to preach to. Paul, mainly the Gentiles, and uh, Peter and the other guys, mainly the Jews. 
And Paul uses the word Cephas, or uses the name Cephas for Peter, because that's his Hebrew name. And I think he does that to show that the Hebrews made no changes to his gospel. There was no difference between them. So this can give us some assurance this morning. The first point I want to draw out, this can give us some assurance this morning that the gospel that you and I have also received today is the same gospel from the first century. There has been no changes to the basic, simple gospel that you and I have received. Now, over the age, let's be realistic, people have tried to add changes, right? And this is often the battle that the church faces generation after generation. It's a generational thing. Every generation has to face this battle in a slightly different way because of the cultures that can happen, because of the wars that happen, because of the way things shift and change. There's always this push against Christianity to add to it, to add something else to it. Right? Whether it is works, it is some sort of religious thing, or if it's some ideology, whatever, you can picture in your mind today that even the most... The, the people that claim to be the most welcoming of everyone put barriers in the way of how you can believe the gospel. You must behave in certain ways. I, I, I won't go into that right now. I'm going to go into that a bit later. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, so we can know that the, what we have today is the full gospel, and there's no secret information you need to be saved. Do you trust, believe in Jesus? Yes, that's all. That saves you. You don't have to know anything more. You don't have to be smarter. You don't have to go for, you know, courses for 12 months, whatever, to understand it. It's actually very basic in its understanding. So, there are many movements and teachings out there today that will tell you that the gospel isn't as simple as you think. And often, it's quite a complicated message. Some of them, even today, involve having to bring in Jewish customs and laws into your life. Now, I've got no problem with someone who wants to celebrate something Jewish because they like it, or they kind of think it is something that, that you know, God and them could, you know, something that they could honor God with. But if it gets in the way of the simple fact that faith in Jesus is what saves you, then it's a problem. And we need to remember, no matter what it is, even if it sounds like the most righteous thing in the world, if it gets in the way of simple faith in Jesus, it's not the gospel. It's an addition to the gospel. And you remember that in your own heart too, right? Some of us have a weaker conscience than others, okay? And we've got to constantly remember and tell our own hearts when we sin that God's not counting our sins against us because Jesus did die on the cross. It's done already. We have to remind ourselves not to add things to, the, to, to what it is that God says, Remind ourselves, even in our sin, when we sin, when we fall, when we die, when we stoop and do these things, right, that God still does not count it against us. And that can be a hard thing to do because our conscience might not let us. We have to preach that gospel to ourselves. And remember, it's a very simple reality that he saves us regardless of our works. Yes, he's changing us. Yes, he's transforming us. Yes, he's making us into new people. But the new people he's making us into is not what counts for salvation. What counts for salvation is the work Jesus did on the cross for us. All right, so the first question then I want to just draw from the Scripture. There will be four. And the first question is, are you open to God today? Yes. Good. <laughs> we'll find this from Galatians 2 verse 6. Just listen to what Paul writes here. It says, from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. 
And, you know, I used to read this and think, Paul's being kind of rude, isn't he? <laughs> right? It's kind of like saying, yeah, you know, I went to go see those original guys. They, got, they hang out with Jesus. They were a big deal. Ah, but they mean nothing to me. <laughs> and I'm like, they're a bit rude, Paul, like a little bit arrogant. But what Paul's really saying here is that it doesn't matter what God did then. What matters is what is God doing today? Right? We sometimes do this. Oh, I remember back in 19-whatever, or 2000 for some of you, right? <laughs> that God did this through my life. I was a deacon at this church back in 19, you know? God really moved in those days. And we so, we've built our entire lives around the golden years. The golden years, actually. Well, you know what I mean? The, <laughs> the glory days, that's what I'm looking for. The glory days, Right? Our entire lives are built around the glory days, back when God did something with us or through us, and that's where we live. And Paul's thing here is saying, even though these guys had influence, even though these guys were the guys, are they still the guys today? Is God still working through them today, or are they resting on their reputation? Now, I don't think he was saying they necessarily were. He's building the argument that if they were, it makes no difference to him because he knows what God is doing through him today. And he knows what God has said to him today. And so the first encouragement to you I want to bring out is don't live in the past. Amen. The question to you is are you open to God today to work through you, to work in you, or are you still wanting to rescue what he's done a long time ago? And you could even see this in the church all over, right? Where sometimes guys had amazing ministries like healing ministries in the 50s or 60s. And it's kind of weird when you see they're trying to live in those days and they still want to have this ministry, but it's like God's not doing that through them anymore. Because sometimes God does change the seasons and the way he works through us, and we have to be okay with that. We can't form our identity around one thing that God did with us a long time ago. Because God is changing us and moving us from glory to glory. And if we close ourselves to what he wants to do today, while he won't work through us today, he can't because we are close to it. Does that make sense? hope that encourages you today. I really felt that for some of us, we need to say, okay, God, use me today, however it looks. I'm not going to put a prescribe how it should look based on how it used to look. The second question is, do you know the gospel? And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this. Galatians 2 verse 78 says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been trusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter to his, for his apostolic ministry to the uncircumcised, to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Now it's interesting that he uses this phrase circumcised and uncircumcised when he could have just said Jews and Gentiles. And I think the reason why he's doing that is because he's, he's tapping into a theological point here. And the book of Galatians, I think, in many ways is like a microcosm of, what, of the arguments Paul makes around the gospel that he expands in the book of Romans. So what he's referring to here, obviously, is that what, what all the Judeans would have been saying is, would have been saying, you need to get circumcised because that's a Jewish custom if you want to be part of the family of God. You can't be a Christian without being circumcised, which would, I don't know how much good news that would be for guys. So, and the thing is that circumcision was originally a sign of being in covenant with God 
in the Old Testament. God told Abraham when he was 99 years old to be circumcised. He says that to him in Exodus 17. I'm sorry, Genesis 17, which we're going to read next. Um, yeah, let's read Genesis 17 right now. This is the instructions that uh, God gave to Abraham. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house, listen to this, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, I wonder if you picked up what he's been saying here. What he's, what he's saying here. He's saying anyone who was circumcised would be in the promise. Even the servants that came from a different land were to be included in the promise. Now, firstly, this is an interesting apologetic point. Right? If you think about what many people say, what the Bible says about slavery, um, the Old Testament slavery wasn't the same kind of slavery. You can't even really call it slavery. It was more someone who um, was bought to be a servant in the household for a set amount of time. And it would often be a case of trying to get them out of poverty. So you could attach yourself to a rich family, and that would draw your family. Your whole family would be involved in that, and that would draw your family out of poverty. And uh, after seven years, you could be released from that, or you could choose to be involved, be part of that family for life. So it really was a program of helping people attach, poor people attach themselves to rich people so that they could be drawn out of poverty. Very interesting. And what's interesting, yeah, is that... He, God says, even those who aren't Jewish, even those who aren't of your blood, Abraham, you need to bring them into the promise that I've given to you. So Abraham's slaves essentially were being sold into a promise. Interesting way of thinking about what God was doing here. Not condoning slavery, obviously, but I'm saying there's something else going on here. Abraham's, uh, these slaves, these servants were being sold into a promise. They were being sold into freedom, in a sense, because the promise they were being sold was greater than what they would have had outside of it. And there's a gospel element here I want to get to in a moment. But what I want to do before I get there is, uh, is just read Romans 4. Looking at Paul's arguments that he's going to be making for the gospel in Galatians, Slightly in a deeper way, thinking about this thing of being involved, being part of the family of God through circumcision. So Romans 4 says this, it says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. This is us. Blessed is the man, the woman, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And Paul says in verse 9, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? 
For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Today, the Spirit is the seal of the righteousness that we have by faith. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So that's the Gentiles. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Seems like a really long way to say a very basic thing, right? But <laughs> there's a lot being brought out there. And Paul's basically hearkening back to Genesis 12, 15, and 17, where we see that God declared Abraham righteous before he told him to be circumcised. Some years, in fact, before he told him. He was about 80 years old when God told him, when I mean, God promised him that, um, that he would make him a nation. And it says there that he believed the Lord was counted to him as righteousness. That's in Genesis 8, uh, 15. And as Paul argues that this means that before he was instructed to do the covenant sign, God said he was righteous. The word justification means declared righteous in the original Greek. So Abraham was not obviously righteous in action if we look at the following actions he does after God declares him righteous. I wonder if you know how the story outlays. Because after God says that, Abraham commits adultery. And he tries to get God's promises, him and Sarah, because her idea too, tries to get God's promises fulfilled by doing it in the flesh. And this is Paul's main thing. This is what we do all the time. God says something to us and we say, thanks God, that sounds amazing. Guess what? I'm going to try to fulfill those things through my ideas, through my effort, through my works, through my bright ideas, like Abraham and Sarah's bright idea. That caused exceptional hardship and pain for everybody. We often do this, don't we? Thank you, Lord. That's great. Oh, grace is free. Cool. Now I better do something to prove it. Right? I better live up to the code. Whatever that code looks like. And so the point makes is that belief in God and His promises is what counts as righteousness, not our works. Next note. God does not revoke his declaration even when Abraham and Sarah mess up badly. He doesn't say, Sheesh, I'm so sorry I said that about you. Guess what? You're not, so I'll take it back. Right? He doesn't revoke his promises. His grace is not so fickle in the face of human weakness. I like to think of it like this. Sin is not kryptonite for God. You know Kryptonite from Superman? He can't be in the presence of it. He goes weak, goes fumble, runs away. We often almost preach that way. Oh, when sin's around, God can't be there. Actually, that's where God is because that's where his power needs to be to make a change. Right? He declares us righteous and he comes into our lives and he makes the changes despite how badly we mess up. That is the gospel. God does not reject us because of our sin. If he's declared you as saved, he's declared you as saved. So Paul's point isn't circumcision or outward signs or things that you have to do that declares a person righteous, but the declaration of God is founded on the work that Jesus did, the work of his cross, his resurrection. Nothing justifies you except the work of God. 
So Abraham has to circumcise himself at 99 years old when God comes after Ishmael is born, after Sarah and Abraham's idea did not work, and says, by the way, it's going to be Isaac. That's where the promise is going to be through. He has to cut his flesh away as a sign that he is relying on God. It's almost like God saying, in your self-sufficiency, cut your self-sufficiency away. Everything that could make this promise work by your way is not going to work. And as a sign of that, cut it away. So you know, at 99 years old, I'm going to do this in your life. That's what God was saying to him. And Abraham says, well, I'm as good as dead. Can God bring the dead to life? The answer to that question is yes. He does bring the dead to life. And he does that with us. And he'll do that even in more power one day when he comes back to be given new bodies. We are saved by the work of Christ on the cross, which is what we believe is his saving work. Now, I just want to quickly go back to this, um, just quickly, maybe not reverse, but just come from a different angle here. God had planned right from the beginning that there would be a people group of his own, a people that belonged to him, a people he would buy and pay for by his blood. So you can see what he says to Abraham. He says, even those foreigners, those people that you've bought, bring into the promise. He does the same with us. He bought us by his blood. He buys us and he brings us into the promise, into all the promises that he gave to Abraham in the Old Testament. All those blessings are ours in Jesus' name. That's what he brings us into. He takes us from where we were and he brings us into the family of God, into his kingdom. And essentially, this is the argument that they have in Galatians. They say, well, if you want to be part of the family of God, be part of all the blessings, be part of everything that God wants to give you, you've got to do all these things. And Paul is saying, no, you don't have to do all these things. You just believe like Abraham did. And if you do that, you're brought into all the promises of God. Now, you can imagine if, that, if you were kind of Jewish at the time, you might mean like, good grief, that's unfair. These guys did nothing. And they just come in. Like, shouldn't we put some barriers in the way? I mean, we do that often with people. I'll tell you, we do. You've been a Christian for 25 years. Some guy gets saved tomorrow. Oh, jeez. Maybe we need to put some stops on this, put some barriers in the way, some hoops they need to jump through before God can use them. You know? So we do do that. So Jesus bought us from all the nations of the world. He bought us who are not related to Abraham, blah, blah, unless you are Jewish today, and includes us in the promises and blessings. What doesn't, what doesn't count is our relation by blood. What counts is the blood of Christ. So then, those who believe in this work and the one who did the work are saved, which is why Paul ends Romans 4 by saying, Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So, to summarize, if we bring it all together, we see that no work is what saves you before God. Sin does not actually destroy God's salvation. Mistakes do not undo it. God doesn't unadopt you or sell you into slavery back to the world. Religion doesn't fix your relationship with God or bring you the blessings of God. Being related to the right people by blood, your ethnicity ethnicity does not actually mean anything for salvation. And don't lay burdens on people that God does not lay on them. He doesn't expect anyone to be saved, be perfect before he saves them. Amen. 
Don't go around deciding who God can or cannot justify. He justifies whoever he wants. I love this phrase. I heard it somewhere. I don't know where. But tomorrow's church leaders woke up today, this morning, in the wrong bed. And that could sometimes be an insult to us. Right? God will use and save whoever he wants. And this finally important point, anyone who believes in Jesus is grafted into the promises of God that was given to the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, starting with the blessings of Abraham and including the blessings for the Hebrews in the Old Testament law. Now, I'm going to, the reason why I'm bringing this, is, it might seem like a technical point, but it's a very practical point, and so I'm going to show why when we talk about the poor at the end of this chapter. But the point is we are grafted in because of faith in what Jesus did which tore the curtain in half, reconciling us to God and also reconciling us to each other. All people into one kingdom were bought by price into the family of God. So the third point I want to bring out here is, do you know your call? The first, third question. And based on the last thing I said there, we can see that the gospel brings unity it reconciles the people of God into one kingdom. Ethnicity and class makes no difference. And I say class because we're going to go to speak about the poor in a moment. But we have to understand that the gospel means that God brings together people from all nations, backgrounds, cultures, socioeconomic conditions, and sinful struggles into one people called the church, into one kingdom, under one king. And even though while he does that, he gifts us differently. So we see this in uh, verse 9 in our scripture. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So they agreed to go to different groups and the nations, I mean, in, and nations. And they agreed that the poor among them all must not be neglected. You can see, even though God puts us all into one, He gifts us differently. He gives us different vocations, different callings, different ministries. And we ought to take that seriously. We ought to know that whatever God has for you is what He has for you. We're not comparing ourselves to each other. Don't compare what God's got for you to another. But the message remains the same. So then I just want to go to the last point here. What are your views on the poor? And you see that asked in verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, we can't spiritualize poor and say it's those who don't have Jesus yet. And that would be fine to do. Right? That's, so that's a reality. At the same time, we can't over-spiritualize the poor so that there's no reality to the actual poor people that we, that we see or that we can help. Christianity must also not be classist. The rich and the poor to be together in the same kingdom. And I think this is one of the main points that they're making here through the scripture that Paul's making here. Poor people are not projects. They're fully-fledged members of the family of, the God, of God and the kingdom with access to the same promises. So the context here is essentially that the Jerusalem church was actually poor at the time. And they were asking maybe for the Gentile churches not to forget them. Because the Gentile churches were doing pretty well. And maybe the Jerusalem church was poor because they were facing severe persecution. They had been shoved out of the Jewish community in many ways. 
and the 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 economy of that Jewish community, they had probably been shoved out of that in many ways as well. So the Jerusalem church was poor, and they were saying, listen, don't forget that that like not only do we have this partnership with what it is we're preaching, but we have to have this partnership with what it is that our needs are at the same time. There was clearly a concern that the rich churches would have different priorities. And this is an interesting point to make, and that is sometimes if we're a rich church, we have very different priorities. It's nice. There are many churches, actually, who meet in beautiful buildings like this that we have, and churches that even meet in much more beautiful places. There are also churches that meet under trees on Sunday mornings all over the world. Are those who meet under the trees not valid because they don't have the beautiful stuff? And those who have the beautiful stuff are not valid because they do? No. Sometimes we make these little judgment calls. Oh, this one's got a better building. They do the real thing. You know, these guys are under the trees. They do the real thing. We have to move on from those discussions. And let God be, let be who we are where God's put us. But not forget the others. Because we're busy doing our own thing. And we have our own priorities and our own schedule and our own things that we think are important. Which might not be important to anyone anywhere else. Right? Sometimes we must not forget the poor. So I want to make two points here, a quick theological point, then a practical one. Today, and even in the early church and through church history, there's essentially existed two extremes when it comes to material blessings. The first one is what I would call, it doesn't really have a name, but we're all familiar with it. It's kind of a poverty gospel, all right? And the second one is the one we're probably more familiar with, which is the prosperity gospel. So poverty gospel is when the Christian life is only ever suffering. And people will preach this. That it's only those who suffer the most who are the closest to God. And only those who suffer the most are better Christians. There's a sense in which this is sometimes preached, right? Or, or understood. The more you're suffering, the happier God is with you. Which isn't true. right? We, when God says you will be persecuted, there will be suffering. But he doesn't say... You better get on your knees and pray for some suffering. And you better hope that suffering comes in your life, otherwise I reject you. What you're doing there is you're adding something to the gospel that isn't there. Right. It's a works-based gospel. And it really is a works-based gospel. Because when you begin to adopt in your life, you will. how much can you suffer? What is enough suffering? Where does that limit reach where you say, God's finally happy with my suffering? It doesn't exist. Right. It really just doesn't exist. So it's adding to the gospel. Right. The opposite extreme, in retaliation to that, that kind of began in like the 50s, is the prosperity gospel. Because the history behind that is, I won't mention, there's a whole lot of guys who realized we're all poor pastors. Surely God didn't call us to live our lives like this. And then they began to say, maybe God's got blessings for us. And then some of them took it and said, actually, God only ever blesses you. There's never suffering in your life. And if you don't believe that God's going to bless you, and if you're not rich as we are, God is not as close to you as he is to us. And that's essentially the, the, the thing that undergirds the prosperity gospel. It adds to the gospel. Only those who have super powerful, amazing faith receive God's blessings, and then guess what? They are closer to God and they are better than the others. This is essentially where it goes. It creates faith. It makes faith into a work, really. And faith is not a work. Faith is a relational reality. 
can you have, can you actually, this is not in my notes, but I love this analogy. Um, I hope I get it right because I didn't write down my notes. But I, I remember reading this once where um, the, the, the story goes like this. Someone's in a classroom and they're learning maths and math, sorry, we call it maths, but it's math. And the professor turns around and says to them, five plus five equals ten. And they look at someone and say, do you, do you agree with that? And he says, yes. Do you really, really believe it? Do you really believe five plus five equals ten? <laughs> I mean, can you, isn't that the dumbest question ever? How can you really believe? Yes, it is what it is, right? And that's what faith is. We don't have to sit and question our faith and say, is my faith good enough? Is it strong enough? Is it? Well, no, actually, faith is faith. It doesn't have to be added to. It's a simple relational reality between you and God where you say, yes, I believe it. That doesn't mean it's not difficult to sometimes believe what God says. It was hard for Abraham, and that's why he did things in the flesh. But it's not as if you can have more or less faith, really. I mean, we speak like that. But in reality, you can't really conjure up more faith. It's, you can't really get so introspective and say, do I really believe that God's good? God loves me? Do I really believe it? Really believe it? When we get into that mindset, we just, we just wreck ourselves, don't we? Yes, you do. That's it. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I do. That's why the Bible says, if you have faith and you confess with your mouth, done. Because it's not like a complicated thing. We can't make sense of a complicated thing. So I just wanted to say, when we're looking at the poor, yeah, we're looking at the poverty gospel and the prosperity gospel. Both of them add to the gospel. The reality, however, and I don't think it's a coincidence actually that, uh, that Paul brings in the poor at the end or that this came up in the conversation because it had to do with the fact that are the Gentiles also incorporated in all the material blessings that Scripture outlays in the Old Testament that was for the Jewish people? That was a discussion too. Is this just a spiritual thing or does it mean everything? The answer is actually it means everything. Everything is yes. In Jesus. Everything. The inheritance he has is everything. Yes, by faith and patience we inherit. Not always instantly, because he's a good father. He knows his timing. He knows what he's doing. And some of us will suffer more than others. But the point is to note that the Christian life is one where we always should expect suffering and persecution and should expect blessing and God's goodness all at the same time. We can't lean this way or that way. We have to know. This is life, man. But our life is with God, and He's with us. And He's going to look after us. He's going to look after us. And if we are in one of those countries where we're facing persecution, somehow He will look after us even in those circumstances. Even if it is just joy in our hearts as we face these things. But He's in charge. He knows what He's doing. We can rest easy. God will look after you. God is he does see you, and he is glad with you. So we should expect blessing. He's a good father. We are sons, his sons and daughters. God is not a miser who sits and keeps all the good things to himself, right? Tries to store it away because he's maybe afraid, I don't know, of dishing it out to you. We can trust God to bless us so that we can be generous people representing the hospitable and generous heart of God to others. If God isn't a miser, we shouldn't be one too, which is why he says, remember the poor. Don't just carry on with your life 
I don't want to make anyone feel guilty. My life is busy too. It's not that we're saying, or that what's being said here is we must make a whole life about the poor. That's a very unique calling. But to also remember that our lives are more than just our hobbies and our interests and our next vacation and even our children. Our life is more than that. Because of wonderful things that God gives them, the good gifts. But we should never let the good gifts take us away from what God's calling us to do in the bigger scheme of things, because the good gifts then become weights on our back. So, and I mean, simply, even right now, we've got the rotend thing going on. I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying, like, there's ways we could, we could get involved in this. And we see that Christian unity begins with the gospel, and that's really what we've outlined here. It begins with the gospel, and it ends with affecting our entire lives, including our finances, our time, the practical things. And so we ought to live out our faith just like James says in James 2. That's the end of my notes. Um, so the band can come up. Um, I really just felt, felt this morning as well, just to go back to the first point what is God saying to you today? How does he want to use you today? Um, at the Equip early this year, uh, we, it was early this year, right? Yeah. Um, one of the guys got up and he preached this fantastic message. He said it had a lot to do with this, where he was saying, you know, all the, th- all, all the testimonies that God had given him, all the good things that God had given him, had become like stones he was holding in his hand. And I might get his analogy wrong, but this is what I kind of took away from it. And he was holding on to these stones, not letting them go. And if your hands are closed, you can't do anything, right? You're holding on to them. And some of us perhaps have done that, and I've really had this sense for preparing that some of us have done that. God's done some great, amazing things in the past in our lives, and there's been some suffering that we've gone through. And we're holding on to these things like stones, and so our hands are closed. And we're not doing what God's telling us to do today. Because I'm still holding on to the suffering and the things that happened and I'm still not over these things yet. And it's hard to get over them. But I'm still holding on to these things. I'm still holding on to these things of the past. I won't let them go. Because I'm angry with God maybe. Or I'm angry with others. Whatever the case may be. I'm not letting these sufferings go. Maybe I see these sufferings as a badge of honor even. God says let them go so your hands can be open so you can work today. And equally the blessings that has given us the testimonies of the past the victory we've had holding on to these things and they can become an equal weight in our lives because we're still living like 20 years ago rather than what God is doing to you today and our hands are closed and we can't open them and do what God wants us to do today so let's stand